Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer. On this podcast, you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. Jonathan Edwards, Puritan pastor and theologian of pre-Revolutionary War New England, and eventually the president of Princeton University, preached his most famous sermon on July 8th, 1741, in Enfield, Connecticut. It was entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. This is a portion of that sermon, words that have shaped more of American Protestantism and evangelical theology than we can imagine. Quote, God is angry with great numbers that are now on earth, with many that are now in this congregation. More angry than He is with many of those who are now in the flames of hell. The wrath of God burns. Their damnation does not slumber. The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot. The flames do now rage and glow. There is nothing between you and hell but the air. But your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly plunge into that bottomless gulf. And all your righteousness would have, been, have no more influence to uphold you and to keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. If God should only withdraw His hand, the fiery floods of His fierceness, the wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would do nothing to withstand or to endure it. For the bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow is made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow toward your heart and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps that arrow from being made drunk with your blood. God holds you over the pit of hell as one would hold a spider over the fire. God abhors you. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the flames. There is no reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose this morning. You hang by the slenderest of threads. The wrath of the infinite God beholds your case. And when He sees your torment, He will have no compassion upon you. There shall be no mercy. He will have no regard to your welfare. 
nor be at all careful lest you should suffer too much. He will crush you under his feet. He will crush out your blood and make it fly. He will not only hate you, but he will hold you in the utmost contempt. No place shall be thought fit for you, but under his feet to be trodden down as the mire in the streets. And what hope, what escape did Pastor Edwards offer his parishioners who are now trembling in the pew? The final paragraph of his sermon. Let every one of you that is without Christ and hanging over the pit of hell, whether they be old or middle aged or young people or little children, now hearken to the loud calls of God's word. Awake and fly from the wrath to come as the wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Haste and escape for your lives lest you be consumed. End of quote. We kind of chuckle at that today, but I can tell you that with those few paragraphs from Edwards, I have summarized the religion, theology, and view of the cross of my most formative years. And it is the religion, theology, and view of the cross that absolutely thrives today for a massive subsection of Protestantism. Jonathan Edwards did not develop it, but it reached its pinnacle with him and his infamous sermon. A vengeful heavenly father punishes his son for an offense that the son has not committed. A ruthless deity demands blood and fire to appease his own stunted psychosis. Heaven takes it all out on Jesus to keep God from doing it to us. For a good part of my Christian experience, decades, this was the only picture of the cross that I knew. And I would venture that if you were raised as a Protestant in the Reformation tradition, which includes most every Christian except Catholics and Quakers and the Orthodox and a few in the Mennonite family. And if that religious training was moderate or conservative or fundamentalist in nature, it didn't matter. You were programmed in such a way that when someone said Jesus died on the cross, you probably thought of something, maybe not as harsh, but along the same lines that I've just shared with you. When he was on the cross, I was on his mind, goes a line from a song we sang in our church. I should have been crucified, goes another. I should have suffered and died. I should have hung on that cross in disgrace, but Jesus, God's son, took my place. Unconsciously, like Pavlov's dog, we hear that phrase, Jesus died for me, and we immediately begin thinking of one particular picture. We go in one particular direction. We have heard this one story and been coached in this one interpretation to such exclusion that such thinking is our default setting. And that setting is referred to, this ugly uh, thing I've described today even has an ugly name. It's referred to as penal substitution. 
And it is the fourth major view of the cross and the most modern of the four views. To the lineage of the cross, we looked at this last week, the four primary understandings of what the cross is about, of what the cross accomplished, of how the death of Jesus did so. The oldest is the ransom idea. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. This is a picture of liberating grace, of setting the captives free. Two, Christus Victor, quoting Irenaeus, God came to earth that He might kill sin, deprive death of its power, and restore life to all humanity. Last week, moral exemplar, and it bears repeating from last week, the death of Jesus on the cross was such an act of loving sacrifice, such a far-reaching, world-transforming, relationship-changing event, that if just remotely understood, then Jesus' example of all-encompassing love would break our hearts open to love in return. Nobody told me about these other views as I was coming along. I mean, there were hints of it here and there. We occasionally sang victory in Jesus. We talked about how we could be liberated. And there was even the occasional mention of God's love. But these others were never emphasized. It was always this fourth view, this idea of substitution. We Protestants, finally at 1500, we finally had a view of our own that no stinking Pope had ever got his hands on. I think that was some of the motivation. You know, for all of Christian history, everybody has been wrong. And we've got it figured out. That's sort of the idea. Because this doesn't show up until we're 1,500 years into Christian history. Penal substitution. Two major verses, two Key ingredients, Romans 4.25, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Have you noticed, by the way, just using that word ingredients, have you, have you ever noticed that you can take the same ingredients and depending how much of which one you use, whatever you're cooking turns out different in the end? I mean, flour, water, eggs, sugar, but you start mixing up those ingredients and, you know, the outcome is completely different. That's what the reformers did. They looked at all the same verses. They looked at all the same ingredients, but they started giving emphasis to one ingredient over the other and came out with a different cake. And two of these ingredients, Romans 4.25, 2 Corinthians 5.21, Jesus was handed over to die because of our sin. And God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sins. The reformers took these verses along with a few others and developed this system. Simply put, penal substitution argues this way, that Jesus was punished, penalized, penal, by God in our place. Substitution. So that God might be able to forgive us of our sins. Now that's a dramatic oversimplification, but it is the crux of it nonetheless. Two gentlemen here, John Calvin was the most stringent developer of this view, 
but he based it on a theology from the Middle Ages. There was a man named Anselm, 500 years before Calvin, who lived in a feudal society. Everyone lived in a feudal society in Europe at the time. Kings, queens, lords, and their subjects. And it became clear that if you offended your king, if you insulted the king, you had to pay for it. A tax, a payment, an offering. And God help you if you betrayed your king. Because if you betrayed your king, you would be executed. And it was Anselm who first developed the idea, a thousand years into church history, who said, as human beings, we have offended God. And somebody has got to die. You have offended your king. Calvin comes along a little bit later. He's a lawyer, and we should know right then that when attorneys start drawing up theology, we might not be on the best path. But he was a very skilled attorney. He was a good lawyer and he had a judicial mind. And he brought that mind to the reading of the Apostle Paul. And he agreed with Anselm that we, by our very nature, offend God. And there must be some kind of recompense for this. Some kind of satisfaction. And so, Calvin says this. The only end which the Scriptures uniformly assigns for the Son of God is that He might appease the Father by becoming a victim. Because of our sins, Jesus must assuage. Jesus must satisfy the anger of the King toward His disloyal subject. And this gets right to the trouble with this view. As strong and as accepted as it is today. It gives us a God, a king, whose biggest concern is not the well-being of his subjects. It's not his world. It's not his kingdom or even his son. His biggest problem is his own unresolved anger. It is in need of retribution. It is his grievance that must be sated. His wrath which must be appeased. It is a distinctly medieval understanding. God has been wronged. And the remedy for this offense he feels and has experienced becomes the driving force behind the cross. And it makes Jesus out to be a very tragic hero. But what does it say about God? I want you to think about that today. And I'm painting in broad strokes, and those who hold this view would say that I am not being nuanced or refined enough, and I accept that critique completely. But I rush to add that even with nuance or adjustment, this view sure makes God out to be someone who is small and petty and insecure. And it makes our sins bigger than God. Our wrongdoings run the universe. Because God can't find it within Himself to get over it without killing somebody. The God of the universe is so offended by little bitty me, so hurt by my existence, so repulsed by my being, that He can't stand me, that He can't accept me, that He wishes to be made drunk with my blood. I believe With all my heart that Jesus is our substitute. I'll pick up right there next week. I believe that Jesus bore our sins. 
I believe that He took our guilt. There's more to say about that next week as well. He took into His body the wrongdoing of the world. Yes, yes, yes. But not for one more minute longer will I believe in a God who not only hates us, quote, but who holds us in the utmost contempt, who wants nothing more but to trample us down as the mire of the streets. Well, you know, God can't look upon sin. Really. He's not looking at our world right now. Tell me in the Bible where it says that. I'll wait. Because you will not find it. Where does it say in the Bible that God took out His vengeance on Jesus? It is not there. That Jesus died to satisfy God's wrath. It never says that. That Jesus was punished or that God's wrath was appeased. Never. We sometimes sing a song here, a contemporary hymn entitled, In Christ Alone. And you may not have noticed, but we change the lyrics every time we sing it. There's a line in the original version that says, And on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And I cannot sing that. And we sing instead, if you haven't noticed, And on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was satisfied. Because it is love that motivates God's actions, not anger that motivates God's actions. Are you saying God never gets angry? Well, let me ask it this way. Do you have children? I will repeat the one message that I have, for I have no other. God loves you. God loves you not because you are good, not because you are lovable. Not because of what you can do for God or for others. Not because the way you make God feel. God loves you because God actually really is that good. God loves you just as you are and not as you should be because you are never going to be as you should be. God is love. And if God were to stop loving you, then God would stop being God. So to that end, Jesus did not come to save us from an angry God. Jesus came showing God's true nature to save us from our sins. The cross was not a means to get God to finally love and accept us. It was a drastic, shocking, staggering proof that we already have God's love. And this is why I'm wandering out into all these technical and theological weeds with this series of talks. Because it's more than talk. It has real life, real world implications. As people of faith, what we believe about God, returning to Tozer's quote, is the most important thing about us. And if we believe in that God, that caricature lurking behind so much of the church's preaching, a God who must murder someone, in order to assuage his anger, if we believe in that God, it will have crippling, fear-mongering, shame-inducing, toxic results for ourselves and for the world. And we wonder, 
why religious people are some of the craziest people in this world. Because we sometimes hold some of the most damaging beliefs. And people become what they worship. And isn't it interesting that the angriest, foulest, judgment-obsessed people in the world are worshiping that exact kind of God. So I'd like to reword a portion of that infamous sermon and offer it as a prayer today. God loves all that are now on earth and all that are now in this congregation. The love of God burns. His compassion does not slumber. There is nothing between you and that love, not even the air. When God extends His hand, the fiery floods of the fierceness of His love rushes forth with inconceivable and omnipotent power. For the bow of God's love is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string, and grace bends that arrow toward your heart. When God beholds your case, He is long-suffering and filled with kindness. He has all regard for your welfare. He will uplift you with mercy. He will crush out your fears and make them fly. He will hold you in the utmost affection. And no place shall be thought fit for you except that home that He has prepared for you. That where He is, we will be also. You have been listening to the podcast home of yours truly, Ronnie McBrayer. You can follow me on Facebook or Twitter, whatever your socialization preference may be. At Ronnie McBrayer will get you there in either case. Visit my website at RonnieMcBrayer.org, and there you can stay up to date. On my speaking schedule, books I have written, projects just over the widening horizon, and yes, you can find out more about me than anyone truly wishes to know. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for listening.